Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. This week, we're welcoming John Michael Greer to the program. John, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. Right before we started recording, you and I were talking a bit, and I, I misquoted Lily Tomlin, or, or paraphrased slightly, where I, I, she has a quote that says, as cynical as I am, it's hard to keep up. And, uh, <laughs> and that, was, uh, <laughs> that was kind of my impression from watching the theatrics in Washington unfold. I know they like their brinksmanship, and, and I know they, I wasn't not expecting a cliff deal that was always in the expectation set. It was just that the level of discourse and the awareness of the predicament really struck me again as to just how far away my thinking in Washington, D.C.'s thinking about what we're facing seems to be. How did, how did all that strike you? Well, I mean, besides uh, resembling nothing so much as a three-ring circus with plenty of clowns, um, I would say it was guaranteed that that some kind of resolution would be come up with simply because this horrible fiscal cliff about which there was all this yelling, oh, we can't possibly have that, all that would have done is repeal a little bit of the increase in spending and a little bit of of the tax breaks that have happened since the year 2000. Not only is it not the end of the world, it's, it was not even, it was a small step back in the direction of fiscal responsibility. And the fact that when, when, you know, when things came down to it, everyone said, well, we can't possibly have that. We cannot possibly be responsible custodians of the, nat- of the nation's economy, of government funds, it perish the thought. It was embarrassing. By calling it a cliff, and you're right, it was just a minor sort of a step back towards sanity uh, from... Exactly. <laughs> it's not a fiscal cliff. It's, a, it's a, the beginning of a rope to climb out of the pit we're in. But again, we can't have that. I know. So, so by already co-opting the word cliff, I, I found myself, I have to reach for my thesaurus now. There's not a lot of rhetorical landscape left. Like, as a writer, <laughs> what do we have left? I mean, you've got abysses, uh, canyons, uh, interstellar uh-huh. space travel. I don't know. There's not a lot left out there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably we should have we should have started calling it back when this whole yelling started the fiscal hiccup and just try to get that meme out there so that there were, there were fewer people doing having a chance to do their amateur theatrics aren't oh the dread fiscal cliff <laughs> yeah and that was a bernanke uh term that he sort of i don't know what he was sort of uh, i guess fashioning himself in the old Greenspan style, which was to run all things monetary, actually dabble in all the other markets, but then feel entitled or obliged to come over and, and weigh in on fiscal matters, too. So he seems oh, to have no boundaries. <laughs> it's astonishing. Astonishing. Oh, yeah. Well, since, since what the thing that, of course, everybody is trying to evade talking about is the fact that at this point the United States is busy monetizing its debt. Yeah. The, the quantitative easing, uh, you know, we're good at euphemisms these days. We're paying our debt with the printing presses. We're doing it at second hand, but we're paying our debt with the printing presses. You, you know, the Fed manufactures the money to buy up new treasury bills, and away we go. I cannot think of an example in anywhere in history where that has been done that hasn't turned into a complete disaster within a fairly short time. Well, listen, even if they had a, a reasonable idea that, that uh, this was going to do something, there has to be some time limit on it, right? How many years into this experiment are we now? Mm-hmm. Four and a half, I guess? Well, heck of a good question. Four and a half since they started doing it openly. It's been um, some years, it was some years before then that rumors started moving through uh, the D.C. crawl spaces that, there was, that this, this was going on in a kind of covert method. I would not be at all surprised if we were to find out that 
to to one extent or another, the government, is, the Fed has been buying up treasury bonds and, and stashing them in various places since the 1980s. Well, that would explain a lot. Uh, I remember it was, I think it was September 10th, 2001, and Donald Rumsfeld came out and said, oh yeah, the, the GAO, you know, they, they just did this audit of the government and found that the couple trillion was missing in, in the Pentagon. Not literally meaning that two trillion was, was they couldn't exactly, they, that it had been stolen, but, but just some of it certainly had. But there, I, there was two trillion that nobody could account for. And yes, probably a certain amount of that ended up lighting an assortment of pockets. Yeah, absolutely. So, so when people say, you know, this is our military budget, I say yes, that's the visible portion. I know there's more. There has to be. <laughs> there has to be. Well, a- equally, equally, when um, you know, soldiers going over to well, to to Iraq, to Afghanistan in recent years have had to buy their own kit because the government didn't have any for them. You know, this is our military budget. How much of it is being siphoned off into graft? How much of it is being directed into various black budgets that, you know, end up being spent on, let's say, snapping up T-bills to keep interest rates driven down? I'd say the know. usual amount, probably. Uh, I think yeah. war profiteering is as old as war itself. Hey, that's true. I mean, war profiteering was invented, what, 15 seconds after the first war? <laughs> Roughly speaking. So you had a, a really interesting piece that came out on your blog, the Arch Druid mm-hmm. Report at blogspot.com, and... Um, uh, into an unknown country. This one's titled, and uh, what I what I liked there was that you talked through your predictions for last year, which were pretty well spot on. And for people who who may not be familiar with your work, I, I believe you're following uh, your predictions followed your model of catabolic collapse. Is that right? To a certain extent, basically. The prediction, my prediction was simply that when everyone is running around saying this is the year when the stock market is going to collapse, the dollar is going to lose all its value, the euro is going to disintegrate, blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying no. What we're going to get in, in, in 2012, as it was at that time, what we're going to see in 2012 is all the stuff we saw in 2011, but with the bad meter turned up a notch. Hmm. And that's exactly what we have. One of the blind spots that, that people have consistently nowadays is thinking that collapse has to happen overnight. We, we, we mm-hmm. want that Hollywood spectacular special effects by industrial light and magic. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in fact, in the real world, the way collapse happens is what we see happening around us right now. Everything just getting a little more fragile, a little more problematic, a little more difficult month after month, year after year. More people drop out of the out of the workforce, but of course our unemployment rate goes down, <laughs> and and so on and so forth. That's that's how collapse actually happens. It is an extended process. Now we haven't yet really hit a catabolic crisis of the sort we've seen in our theory. You'll know that we do the, that we've done that when we get a big crisis and then things stabilize because we've uh, we've started basically salvaging the remnants of one set of infrastructure or something in order to um, to meet current needs that's catabolic collapse it's you know it's it's when when a society runs into real problems and you start tearing down the big buildings to make walls or what have you so we're we're cannibalizing one part to feed another as it were and, exactly. And, and exactly so so i think the metaphor for that recent one was is watching uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Chris Christie, governor of New Jersey, was just apoplectic over the fact that Congress, in particular Republicans in Congress, somehow choked on providing relief to Hurricane Sandy victims. And <laughs> and that could be seen as a sign of, of so we're already oh, seeing yeah. a collapse in sort of, I don't know what, like our ability to care for each other. But well, those same Republicans have no problem. I just, it was a couple of weeks ago, it was a great pair of articles that did it perfectly for me. 
One article was that FEMA was really scratching through every possible bridge reconstruction request that Vermont had put in after Irene, which was, what, a year and a half ago or more. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, arguing over a million dollars here, a million there. Were they really building the right bridge? Vermont was saying we want to build ones that could withstand the next storm. FEMA was saying that wasn't in our design plan. It was this big, giant, bureaucratic thing. And, And the article had the FEMA director saying, we're really in charge of taxpayer dollars. On the very next page in my newspaper, just by happenstance, was... Congress authorizes $9 billion for drone program. Like, <laughs> boom, done. <laughs> well, yeah, but, and this is absolutely typical for an empire in decline. Now, I, I know, of course, we don't have an empire. The, the, you know, the, the, the troops we have in 140 different countries scattered around the world, they were there for their health. <laughs> you know, we have mm-hmm. an empire. Let's, let's, let's be real, please. Um, we have an empire. We're in exactly the same situation that Britain was a century ago. That is to say, our empire is bankrupting us. It's past the point where it's a money-making proposition. It's now a money-losing proposition. But you can't tell the imperial overlords that because everything they have is caught up in this fantasy of, of being not merely the, the global policeman, but you know the global mafiosi. And so um, they're going to cling to empire. They're going to fund the drones. They're going to fund the bombers. They're going to fund you know the, the, everything that they think will prop up the, the husk of empire. Well, the center falls out in the middle of it, and so that's what you're getting. You know, the the United the infrastructure we have in the United States is going to bits. Our economy is, is basically gutted, but we've got to have those drones. Because <laughs> I don't know why. Maybe because it, it makes us look strong. So the the most recent jobs report, right? I thought this encapsulated for me: 154,000 jobs created. Nothing to really get too excited about. But the first two top spots by far that that created the most jobs. One was in Education and the second was in healthcare, um, and then the third was leisure and hospitality. And I'm going down that list saying, "Where's the where's the productive jobs? Where are the ones that are giving us productive jobs? The produ- we don't have productive. We don't produce anything in America these days except for debt. Well, shale gas. I hear we have a lot of shale gas. We have a little bit of shale gas. Uh, we have an amazing speculative bubble in shale gas, and we have all these claims that you know, oh, we've got lots of shale. Gas. Do, do you remember when the housing bubble was really going sky high, oh, boy, and I. everyone was going on and on and on about how housing prices were going to go up forever? Mm-hmm. That's exactly the same rhetoric we're now getting with shale gas that's going to power us forever. And in the same way, we've got maybe a year, maybe two before the bottom drops out of that one. Shale gas itself is is obviously a bit of a fraud at this point because it costs mm, about two to two and a half times as much to produce it as they're currently getting in the market. So that's just yeah. not a good operating platform. It, it, no, the the thing the, the, the thing that is that makes shale gas advantageous is that you can use shale gas to extract money from Wall Street and for investors, and of course you can get a certain amount of oil, and the oil is where the money is. Yeah, the the oil still makes a little bit of sense, but will it be the total game changer that turns the U.S. into Saudi no, Arabia and we'll be energy exporters and all this yada 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 yada? yada. No, it's just <laughs> one of the things that I put in the the blog post of mine that you mentioned was a, an actual chart of U.S. petroleum production from 1920 to now, and you can see the the vast upsurge that that all the propagandists are talking about. It's this tiny little upward tweak yeah. on the right hand side of the chart. It's not. You know, you, you, you have to look carefully to see it. Yeah. This is, it's not a game changer. It's not a world-changing event. 
No, it's it's actually a fairly uh, sophisticated propaganda campaign or marketing or PR, whatever term mm-hmm. makes you most comfy. But it's been amazing, and I thought I thought the the I, I had my suspicions about who it was for a long time, and here's why I had my suspicions. Mm-hmm. Um, Christia Freeland is a senior editor out of Reuters, and one day, August. 9th of 2012, she had four articles come out, not just in Reuters, but one in the International Herald Tribune, one in the New York Times, and then one in, oh, I've dropped it, but another major. And all of them were slightly different articles that basically I could sum up this. They said, uh, we have a lot of natural gas and shale oil. It's going to change everything as long as the environmentalists get out of the way. And it read like a, a, a set of collateral coming out of a PR firm that said, we're going to shape opinion because they just blasted it. And then in October, there was this extraordinary barrage of articles all saying the same thing. And then just today in the New York Times, finally, I think we get to see who funded that, which uh, the head of the American Petroleum Institute came out and had those exact talking points in a, in a piece mm-hmm. in the New York Times saying as long as government cannot impose too many taxes or environmental regulations on us, we will make you the next Saudi Arabia, but just don't mess this up. Mm -hmm. Why do you think he's doing that? What are they worried about here? My guess, this is just my working guess, my working guess at this point is that, as with the rest of American industry, the entire horizon in the petroleum industry at this point is one quarter in the future. You've got to make that quarterly profit thing. Mm -hmm. And so all that they're looking at is, can we make a bunch of money this quarter? Mm-hmm. And so, if they can keep on rah rahing the whole, um, you know, the, the whole shale gas, shale oil, we, you know, we we will be the next Saudi Arabia, blah blah blah. You know, they're going to keep their quarterly profits up, and nobody's going to notice the immense amount of money that they're making with you know with oil and gas at the price there. Well, not natural gas, of course, but oil and petroleum and other petroleum products at these extraordinarily high prices. They are. You know, what's amazing to me is is that. Uh at best, we might get mm-hmm. two and a half to maybe three million barrels per day out of the shale oil plays, mm-hmm. which is nothing to sneeze at. But when you look at the time frame it's going to take to get there, which, you know, maybe by 2020, um, over that same period of time, we're basically going to be short, I think, somewhere around 30 to 35 million barrels out of declines out of existing conventional mm-hmm. plays. So it's really like a 10 to 1 sort of a... Uh, exactly. a, 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 a factor here that's just... It, mm-hmm. And nobody's... It's, so they talk about, like, the U.S. as if we are this isolated little energy empire. (laughs) And and, and what nobody is saying is that we could produce as much petroleum as Saudi Arabia, and we'd still be importing most of the petroleum we use every single year. Yes. I mean, America's been the the number three oil producer for, you know, quite a few years now. It is still the number three today, with with Saudi Arabia and Russia duking it out for the top spot. We still import two-thirds or more of our oil, because we use so much. We are so extravagant in our energies. We think, you know, this is a normal lifestyle. It's as though we thought a normal lifestyle involved, you know, lighting our lighting our fireplaces with hundred dollar bills. Burning Picassos is one. Burning Picassos, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, I, I just, John Michael, I just love talking to you because you you have that larger backdrop. I loved what you had at the back end of this post I referenced before, the one that came out in Jan 2nd, because you said, hey, you know, here's some positive things we can do, given this, all these things happening. Number one, you mm-hmm. said, just caulk, weather strip, insulate the place you live. We, most Americans can cut a quarter, around a quarter of their energy usage right now with a couple of hundred dollars of stuff from the local hardware store. It is that simple. All of the lessons that we learned back in the 70s during the last round of energy shortages were blithely forgotten during, you know, when, when Ronnie was going, it's morning in America. <laughs> and 
so there's a, there's a lot of easy gains, and all of this involves money staying in your pocketbook, which is, is always the best investment of all. Uh, and yeah, so you've got that. You've got all the different ways you can use less energy, save more money, you know, make your own life work. And instead of simply yelling at everyone else to change their lives, you know, to to do this for the the earth or do that for the for the deindustrial future, uh, change your own life to start with. Mm. And you had a couple there. One was to make at least one commute or one errand run a week on foot mm-hmm. or maybe by bicycle or public transit. Mm-hmm. Or public transit or whatever, yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and, and they're just, I, I went through, these, these are things, I should mention, these are things that either I do or I'm way past. For example, I don't own a car. I live in a, I live in a relatively small city in the north central Appalachians. People go, oh my God, you can't live without a car. Of course we can live without a car. I'm also in better shape than almost anybody else. Of my, you know, I'm 50 this year and I can now walk most 20-year-olds. Because I walk every. (laughs) You know, there are disadvantages to the burning Picasso lifestyle. One of them is, is, you know, the mess we've made of our health. The human body is made to be active. It's made to move. It's made to lift things. It's made to walk, to cover distance. When we spend our lives sitting on sofas and sitting on car seats, we're not healthy. Mm -hmm. And health, there's another investment you can make. (laughs) One of our contributors, uh, Charles Hugh Smith, regularly says that we don't have a health care system. We have a sick care system. That's a very good point. And well, we have a, more specifically, we have a making profit off a of sickness system. Ah, right. There isn't always much care involved. There is always a lot of profit involved. It's extraordinary. I, I loved suggestion five, which is turn off the boob tube. Now, um, mm-hmm. when we moved in 2003, when I was sort of in, in the midst of figuring all this stuff out, uh, mm-hmm. our kids were so disappointed because the we, we told them the TV got broken in the moving truck, and it just didn't make the trip, and we never replaced it. Uh, that was, it was a few years after, just a couple years after that, that I finally got all of the pieces together in my head. I don't think I could have done that with the TV there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because honestly, I, like, even when I go out traveling and I'm in a hotel, like, I will still turn that thing on. It is extraordinary how good a TV is at capturing attention over nothing. It's just, uh, it's a colossal waste of time, I found. I, 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 have, I have the great advantage in that it's, I, to me, TV is slow. It drones. You have somebody talking, and there's, I, I read very quickly, so if I want information, I'm typically going to pick up a book. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's that, or maybe it's something else. I find television unbelievably boring. I, will, I, I don't turn the TV on when I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. Well, there's just a few things on there that, that are useful, but um, uh, not, not a lot for me anymore. Go, go ahead, go ahead read, get, the, get the same information out of a book, or pick up a magazine. There are many better things to fill your brain with than you know, that crap. Well, you know, every my kids and I were watching uh, YouTube yesterday, and I put on mm-hmm. the David Attenborough piece where he has the uh, the lyre bird that uh, mm-hmm. has figured out how to how to manufacture all the sounds of all the birds as part of its nesting thing. But the amazing mm-hmm. thing is, it's figured out how to exactly mimic uh, a Nikon camera with an electric uh, drive and a chainsaw, <laughs> and it's just extraordinary the things this bird can reproduce perfectly. It's just such yeah. an intelligence. So that was useful. <laughs> that was funny. I, I, I knew somebody with a parrot, by the way, who could um, do traffic noises just extraordinarily well. <laughs> that's, it's a, that's an amazing form of intelligence. It really is. It is. It's it extraordinary. Is. Now, number seven on your list, the last thing on your list, uh, This you, you even prefaced and said this is going to be the scary one for most people. This is the scary one. This is do the scary one. Do without something. Do without something this year. Do without something. Just pick anything. Do without it. That is our big taboo in America today. The thought that you could, you have the power to have something, you could have something, and you choose not to. If you don't have the, if you if you're not willing to do that, you 
your possessions possess you. Hmm. It's when you can let go of something and walk away from it that you actually have have control over it. Hmm. It's like I, I always I always say it's a very good thing to be fired at least once because you will never be afraid of it in the future. You know you've been there. You can live through it. Hmm. Yeah. People who have never been fired, they've never been terminated, they go about in terror of getting a pink slip. Once you've been through the process, you know, okay, you know, there's life after termination. Hmm. Yeah, in, in exactly the same way, you know, oh my God, my life will be incomplete if I don't have, fill in, you know, whatever piece of consumer crap we're talking about. No, do without it. And realize that, yes, there is life, and not only is there life without it, but you don't miss it. Mm. Mm. And that's where power comes from real power, which is power from within the self. So what, what are some things you've done without in the past? Um, well, there are, obviously there's quite a few things that I do without. Um, an automobile is one. Um, a television is another. We don't have a microwave. We don't have most of the, of the standard electrical you know, power appliances, uh-huh. um, which, which, well, I mean, going through a writer's lifestyle, especially in the early days when I was making very little money, it was good to be able to live cheap. Mm-hmm. And I'm still fairly good at it. Uh-huh. But... Yeah, I mean, there's just all the things that our society pushes on us all the time, saying, oh, you have to buy this, oh, you have to buy that. Of course, if you don't watch television, you're not going to have those things stuck in your mind. Uh, But even so, you know, you look at something and say, okay, why? Do I actually want this thing? Or is it just, you know, some corporate executive who's hiring a publicity firm and spending millions of dollars to make me think that I want it? They're extraordinarily good at, at this marketing stuff now, and, and most people don't realize uh, one of the earliest uh, shows that they practiced really testing out an audience, tracking eye movements, noting responses, uh, looking where at you know what was holding attention to really fine-tune the program so they could capture the uh, attention for long enough spans of this target audience was Sesame Street in 1969. That does not surprise me at all. And they had a first couple of pilot programs, and they just they did test focus group audiences and and really honed the craft and and so if you ever you know if, if you watch a two or a three year old watching Sesame Street now and that's like b roll footage for a zombie movie there's expression mm-hmm. on their oh, face yeah, yeah. it's extraordinary oh. how well it's captured and they've only gotten better at all sorts of things at this point yeah. which which is a very good reason to Start by taking your television and dropping it into the dumpster, preferably from a significant height. Mm-hmm. You don't need that stuff in your mind. And once you get it out of your mind, once you can, you can actually start to think rather than simply parroting the stuff, you know, stuff from TV programs. Then you start to, to see where you can make changes to make your life do what you wanted to do rather than what, you know, that executive and his marketing team want you to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So that that's just been fantastic. I'm now a, a very careful consumer of what goes in. And that includes, mm-hmm. uh, even on the web now, I'm much more careful. That, that oh, yeah. it, took, it took big media a while to sort of catch on to the web. It was, it was mm-hmm. a little freer, a little more open at one point. It's, oh, yeah. They're getting better at it and slowly capturing mm-hmm. territory there, too, of course. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. So that's all the time we have, but I, I need to close this by noting that I'm really pleased that you're going to be uh, producing some pieces for our enrolled mm-hmm. members soon. And uh, just wondered if you had any comments about what you're working on or, or how you're approaching that. Well, basically, I want to I want to talk about some of the things that some of the ideas that came out of my my book, The Wealth of Nature, because that was kind of a general overview of ecological economics. What kind of what kind of impact the fact that we live in 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 a biosphere, the fact that all wealth comes to us from nature, 
what that what impact that has on our economic lives and why our economic thinking is completely out of sync with the actual way things are because we ignore the existence of the natural world as the source of all wealth so that was very that was you know general that was very abstract there are specific practical personal implications of that and so i want to explore okay what does this mean in terms of your own life what does this mean in terms of your own prosperity or lack of fame what does this mean about what we can expect for the future of the american economy and you know, the economy of the other industrial countries in the years immediately ahead of it ahead of us there's a lot of material that that unfolds from that and i want to talk about that and next month i could be talking about precious metals and what they're good for and what they're not so good for and why they why they should they you know they can certainly have a valid place in anybody's plan right now and where the drawbacks are, where the downsides might be, and what you need to keep an eye out for. So that should be really interesting to write about. Oh, I'm looking forward to both of those. I, I need to close with one brief anecdote. I, I take my kids skiing on Tuesdays with a homeschooling group, and I was at the top of Mount Snow yesterday, gorgeous day, and this 18-year-old former homeschooling student skied up to me and said, you know what? That podcast you did with John Michael Greer has been my favorite of all of them you've Good done Lord. so far. I can say I have 18-year-old fans. You do. <laughs> the youth. Okay, that makes my head spin. <laughs> the youths are getting involved. Sweet. So that was that was a high point of my day there. That was a, just a gorgeous <laughs> well, day. Well, thank you. You've just made mine. Well, fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much, and uh, we'll do this again, and really looking forward to those pieces. Okay, great.